You ever watch the show How It's Made? Yeah, some of you? Yes, I like that show. Get to watch it periodically. The show that they, sh- they, they tell you how everyday products are mass produced. Recently, I watched one on manufacturing frozen gourmet cookie dough. Yes, it's a good thing. Now, I know how cookies are made, basically. You want my wife to make them or my kids, not me, but I do know how they're made. But as I watched the show about them making all this cookie dough, I was mesmerized by the machinery that they use to make all of these steps take place with such precision. The gigantic mixer bowl, the the dough separator and cutter, the, the conveyor belt, the flash freezer, the shipping box preparing machine, and all the other ones, they they all make me wonder, who made these giant machines to make this stuff happen? So I did a little research on some of these machines and their creators, and through the vortex of websites, I was led to this guy, Henry Bessmer. Bessmer is known to have developed a way to manufacture steel inexpensively in 1856. There were a number of people working through this process, this technique of introducing air into molten iron to purify it, and Bessemer was the first to make it work commercially. The Bessemer process was used in steel production for about 100 years until the development of even better methods. Are there any metallurgists out there? Anybody work with metal? Yeah, not really. There's not very many. So the closest I ever got to metallurgy was in a 10th grade science fair project when I was testing metal alloys. I did earn honorable mention in the science fair. But in my mind, especially at that age, that was just a third place loser. So I'm grateful for Sir Bessmer and others who understand this stuff better. And I think you you should be grateful that he's doing that stuff and he has done it instead of me. But... That leads me to be in awe of Bessemer, in awe of people like him who create these products, who create these machines that make more products like millions of chocolate chip cookies in a relatively short amount of time. And I believe that's the right response. I believe I should be researching these brilliant people and and being in awe of what they've done, awestruck of their inventions that are good and good for humanity. I'd like to sit down with people like Bessemer and other inventors and and learn from them. It would be an honor to sit with them. Even if I don't completely understand their field, I could learn something. However, if I really stop and think, if I really take a moment, then my heart and my mind should wonder about the one who made these beings. Who made the one who is making all these cool machines and developing these processes? Who is the one who put the ore in the ground to be used to make the steel? I wonder. Pastor Wayne makes this comment about our topic today, the wonder of God. God's existence is more than an interesting philosophical abstract. Yahweh, the one true covenant God, chooses to exist in relationship. As a triunity, Father, Son, and Spirit are one God in eternal relationship. Humans who receive his offer of redemption join a divine family affiliation that never ends. Because of those relationships, we realize that God is worthy of awe and encounter. Amazingly, he has made engagement with him an accessible aspect of daily existence, even here 
on a fallen earth. We have the ability to engage with our creator. We're going to begin by taking a look of what it means to be in awe of God. To be in awe of God. We're going to look at Psalm 8. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Psalm 8 before moving on to another passage. Let's read Psalm 8. It says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, as you made him a ruler over the works of your hands, you put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. We should be in awe of God. And the reason is, is because it brings us great benefit when we are regularly in awe and wonder of our God. First thing it does is it changes me positively in humility. It changes me positively in humility. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but there's quite a bit of pride and arrogance blasted out in the world. The world proclaims that we should be proud of the way we are and shout loudly from the rooftops that we are the masters of our own destiny. Our culture praises the supposed courage of a transgender person who defies their creator's design and seeks to change his or her image. The world defines an individual as empowered or inspired if they chase their own happiness while abandoning their families. And the world makes heroes out of rioters and looters by claiming they are just acquiring what they deserve. Politicians and scientists attempt to take on the role of God and promise to eradicate a virus they have yet to understand. Other leaders act similarly. They try to guarantee our safety with pieces of cloth and distance from one another. No, I'm not telling you not to wear your mask, so don't write me about that. But let's take a look at back of the word. Psalm 8, 4. What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. See, being all of God allows us to see ourselves clearly. Being in all of God challenges, challenges our fleshly desire of selfish pride and boasting in ourselves. Oh, that we would spend more time reflecting on the wonder that God looks after us. He remembers us. Let us revel in the truth that he is God and we are not. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 says, He, God, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in an, in an approachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. When I am in awe of God, concentrating on his majesty, he humbles me and he gives me needed perspective. He humbles me and he gives me needed perspective. What perspective? One, I recognize the power of my father. When I sit in, his, when I sit in awe of him, I recognize his power. 
Back at verse 3 of Psalm 8, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. He set the moon and the stars in their place. There's power in him. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Remember that story from Sunday school class? Let's, let's read through that real quick. Genesis 11, 1 through 9 says this. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. See, after the flood, God told Noah to go and multiply and fill the earth. He repeated the same command that he had given to Adam. After some time, we see this depiction in Genesis 11 of, of what the people were actually doing. They were attempting to make a name for themselves while hunkering down and staying together in one place. See, it seemed as it didn't take too long for the people to forget the power of God. He had flooded the whole earth because of sin. He saved one family to start civilization again. And yet we find in the story that they have already forgotten his power and chose themselves and their will over his. I want you to listen to Kenneth Matthews' comments from the New American Commentary. This is a bit long, so hang with me, all right? It, it's worth it. Matthew says this, since the purpose of the city and tower is that the builders will make a name for themselves, it is best to understand the reference to heaven in concert with Babel's prideful autonomy. In Genesis, the Lord speaks from heaven, which is understood as his dwelling place. He establishes throne of dominion in heaven, and it is the privileged place of God open only to his heavenly counsel, while the earth alone is the appropriate domain of humanity. The motives of the tower builders, therefore, are as sinister as their predecessors who desired power. The builders confess their intentions as twofold. One, to make a name for themselves, to make for themselves a name. And two, thereby to avoid being scattered. They want to empower themselves, as we moderns say. These are interdependent goals, though the latter expresses their root fear, which is, has, has incited them to build. Name and scattering, as we have seen, are integral ideas in the narrative. They appear for the first time in the mouths of the builders themselves, echoing the antediluvian men of renown in 6.4, encountering the post-Diluvian command of 9-1. Make and name are also proleptic of God's promise to make an, of Abraham a great nation and to magnify his name. The striking difference between the two examples lies in how the name is achieved. Matthews goes on, it says, reflexive ourselves and for themselves highlight the self-interested and independent efforts of the Babylites. But for Abraham, the Lord bestows the blessing of repetition as a gracious gift. As the Babel narrative unveils, the name they achieve, however, is only Babel or Muddle. 
Man certainly did not expect his project to take such a turn. He did not anticipate that the name he wanted to make for himself would refer to a place of non-communication. He did not anticipate the name he wanted to make for himself would refer to a place of non-communication. See, they forgot God's power. But if we relish in the awe and wonder of God, then we don't have to worry about making a name for ourselves. We don't have to worry about working hard just to utterly fail at doing God's mission. Instead, we can be changed in humility. We can understand God's power to move people, stars, earth, whenever and wherever he desires, and then we can take up the mantle of acting responsibly to manage what he has given us to do. Being in awe of God allows me to be responsible and manage what he has given me to do. Genesis 12, 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram obeyed the Lord by leaving what he knew and going where the Lord said to go. He was 75 years old, and he packed up and took his family to a place that God called him. I realize that people lived a lot longer then than we do now, but as a believer in Jesus, who has eternity waiting for me to rest in perfection with my Savior, I hope that I learn to stay in awe of the Lord in such a way that I will never stop listening, never stop obeying the Lord. He has called me to love him, to love others, to make disciples no matter how young, how old, how healthy, how sick I am on this earth. I have a grace-given responsibility, a grace-given responsibility to manage what the Lord has gifted. Living awestruck at the majesty of my Lord gives me the perspective to do what he has called me to do, no matter my age, no matter my circumstance. And that includes dealing healthily with crisis. Dealing healthily with crisis. Back to verse 2 of Psalm 8. It says, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Did you catch that? God uses babies to speak and to establish strongholds and silence the enemy. The crises of our lives are nothing the Lord cannot handle. And he shows that by saying he's going to use babies to create strongholds. If he has given babies the opportunity to silence the enemy, then living in awe of his majesty, we, you and I, can certainly walk through any crisis, manage it appropriately, and praise the Lord in the process like a trusting child. And we can do this because we have been given authority. We have been given authority. Verse 6, Psalm, Psalm 8 says, You made him a ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. You made him ruler. Mashol. It means declared or made ruler. It's a regency term full of authority. However, the ultimate authority is not in the one crowned, but in the one crowning him or her. 
So you and I, as created beings in the image of God, you have been bestowed a, a great honor to rule over the earth. To rule over the earth with authority. Forgetting that truth leads to littering the seas with trash. It leads to tearing down the businesses of our neighbors and stealing from them. Forgetting the majesty of God shown and crowning us with authority leads to worshiping trees instead of managing the forest with strategies to help prevent destruction. See, much of our problems revolve around our lack of being in awe of our creator who has made us for a purpose. He has made us, created us for good works in Jesus. We do not have to wallow around paralyzed in the middle of chaos, but instead we have the opportunity to joyfully manage what the Lord has given to us, to care for those people and those things that he has gifted. Being in awe of God leads us to humility and understanding and courage to do what he has called us to do, and that is to live abundantly and help others do the same. God is worthy of all. He is worthy of wonder. And he is also worthy of our engagement. We should engage with our God. He's given us the opportunity. We're going to turn to Hosea 6. Hosea chapter 6. Beginning verse 1 says this. Come, let's return to the Lord. For he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Let's strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Let's return to the Lord. Because being engaged with God changes us too. It changes us positively in holiness. Changes us positively in holiness. Whose holiness? Mine? Yours? No, in his holiness. I cannot be holy without the Lord's work. It's impossible. He is the one who will heal us, bind our wounds, raise us up to live in his presence. He will refresh us like the wonderful spring shower refreshes the land. Engaging with him reminds me of his majesty and power to do so. Engaging with God changes me positively to holiness, but sometimes as believers in Jesus, we can get awestruck with his majesty and power, and yet instead of reveling in his love, we run from him. Fearing being found out, we neglect communion with him and others, but we must battle to engage with God. We must battle to encounter him to be changed in his holiness and to gain more needed perspective. To gain more needed perspective. Because when I engage with him, when I engage with him, he, he helps me recognize his love for me. He helps me remember that he loves me. Engaging with God reminds me that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Engaging with God reminds me that, that God loved me so much that he sent his one and only son to, to die on my behalf, to redeem me from death. Engaging with God helps me see that I am my beloved's and he is mine. 
It reminds me that he cares for me even more than the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air. He loves me. He loves me. And when I engage with him, he reminds me of that truth. And because he loves me, I can then realize my responsibility to engage. Romans 4, 16 says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. As I engage with the Lord in his holiness, recognizing his love and my responsibility to engage with him, then I can deal, then I can deal with sin in a, healthily, in a healthy way. Engaging with God allows us to deal with sin in a healthy way. It does this in a couple ways. One, in a positional sense. One, in a positional sense. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Remember also 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when I engage with God, I remember and recognize the fact that nothing can snatch me from God's hands. Nothing can take me away from him. The Spirit has sealed me. When I trusted Jesus as my Savior, the Spirit sealed me in him forever. And that gives me courage to face sin, to confess and deal with sin practically to deal with sin practically. You see, the Lord gives us wisdom. In James, he, he tells us that if we don't have wisdom and we need it and we ask for it, he will give it. James also tells us that, that temptation does not come from God. Temptation to sin does not come from him. It's not of him. And those two important truths come to light when I engage with God. And when I recognize those truths, then I can deal with sin because he will help me in my time of need. He will give me the strength and the courage like Joseph to flee Potiphar's wife. He will help me run away from sexual immorality or lying or stealing or, or manipulation. He will help me run away when I'm engaging with him and asking him for help asking him for wisdom. He will open our eyes to sin that we are hiding or even unaware of if we engage with him and ask, us to, ask him to search us and know us and see if there's any wicked way within us. Engaging with God allows us to deal with sin. So we know we should be in awe of God. We know we should engage with him. But how exactly do we engage? How should we engage How do we get to the God of wonders? First thing, we've got to stop. We're going to engage God. We've got to stop. Pastor Wayne shared this with me. He said, Seneca was a Roman senator and Stoic philosopher who didn't live all he said. Yet much of what he said was worth living. He wrote a short life. And the chairman of our board, Paul Hahn, wrote a wonderful summary for the elders. And we're going to take a look at Paul's uh, summary of this uh, writing by, by Seneca. Paul Hahn says this. 
Finally, everybody agrees that no one pursuit can be successfully followed by a man who is preoccupied with many things. Eloquence cannot, nor the liberal studies. Since the mind, when distracted, takes in nothing very deeply, but it rejects everything that is, as it were, crammed into it. There is nothing the busy man is less busied with than living. There is nothing that is harder to learn. Of the other arts, there are many teachers everywhere. It takes the whole of life to learn how to live. And what will perhaps make you wonder more, it takes the whole of life to learn how to die. Luke 10, 41, 42 says, The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and you will, it will not be taken away from her. If you remember that story, Mary is the one that sitting, was sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, while Martha was running around trying to get things done. Familiar passage, Psalm 46, 10, says, Stop fighting. Many versions say, Be still. Stop fighting and know that I am God. Exalt, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. If we're going to engage with God, we've got to stop. We've got to take time to encounter him. And we also need to marvel. Engaging with God requires us to marvel. Isaiah 29, verse 13 and 14 says, The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with their lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. And human rules direct their worship of me. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise will vanish, and the perception of their perceptive will be hidden. Human rules direct their worship. Ouch. See, this may sound harsh, but this is actually an amazing, compassionate move that God promises. People are all rote and ritual, so God shocks them with wonders. Are you paying attention to the marvelous work of God in your midst? Are you reading of the wonderful acts he accomplished through his word? We're going to look more into what it means to marvel as we continue this year in our annual theme of wonder. But for now, I urge you to stop and look and marvel at his wonders. Simply go outside and marvel at the speed of a hummingbird's wings. Or go climb a mountain and marvel at the God who moves the earth beneath your feet to form such a landmass. Stop and marvel. To engage God, we also must embrace his lordship. We must embrace his lordship Continuing on in Isaiah 29, verses 15 and 16, says, Woe to those who go to great lengths to hide their plans from the Lord. They do their works in the dark and say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, He didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it? He doesn't understand what he's doing. There's an excerpt from John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God. This is another lengthy ones. Stay with me. Piper says, as God has an interest in all of our non-religious life, all our business transactions are his concern. God is not so distant or even so religious that he only cares about what happens at church and during devotions. Every square inch of this earth is his, and every minute of our lives is alone from his breath. He is much more secular than we often think. At the second Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in Manila in 1989, 
Os Guinness, gave a powerful message on the challenges of modernity. He spoke of the modern secular spirit and its infiltration into the church. He warned that we could take on so many features of the world that we could win the world and lose our own soul. He exposed the shallow religiosity of many American churchgoers by comparing it to the sentiment of one high-ranking executive of the McDonald's Corporation. He's supposed to have said, I believe in God, family, and McDonald's. And when I get to the office, I reverse the order. Piper goes on. He says, Guinness said that this is not submission to the lordship of Christ. He quoted Abraham Kuyper. There is not an inch of any sphere of life over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. God passionately concern, is passionately concerned with the way we do our business. Charles Bridges, an evangelical pastor in the Church of England a century ago, asked this searching question. Is it not a solemn thought that the eye of God marks all of our common dealings of life, either as an abomination or a delight? We should test ourselves, Piper says. Are we being shaped more by the secular spirit of the world or by the spirit of God? Is God's will the first and foremost concern in all of our political and business dealings, or only in some personal and domestic areas. God's pleasure and obedience extends passionately to the public sphere of life. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. This allows us to remember what we are really about all the time. What we are really about all the time. We must embrace his lordship. We must also run to his name. We must run to his name. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are protected. The righteous run into it and are protected. Kate Arthur shares a story in the beginning of her book, The Peace and Power of Knowing God's Name. Let me read part of this story to you. Arthur says, she says, my friend tells the story of something that happened while, dad was, while his dad was hunt, deer hunting in the wilds of Oregon. Cradling his rifle in the crook of his arm, his dad was following an old logging road nearly overgrown by the encroaching forest. It was early evening, and he was just thinking about returning to camp when a noise exploded in the brush nearby. Before he even had a chance to lift his rifle, a small blur of brown and white came shooting up the road straight for him. My friend laughs as he tells the story. It all happened so fast, dad hardly had time to think. He looked down, and there was a little brown cottontail, utterly spent, crowded up against his legs between his boots. The little thing was trembling all over, but it just sat there and didn't budge. Now, this was really strange. Wild rabbits are frightened by people, and that's, it's often not that you'd ever actually see one, let alone have one come and sit at your feet. While Dad was puzzling over this, another player entered the scene. Down the road, maybe 20 yards away, a weasel burst out of the brush. When it saw my dad and its intended prey sitting at his feet, the predator froze in its tracks, its mouth panting, its eyes glowing red. It was then that Dad understood he had stepped into a little life-and-death drama of the forest. The cottontail, exhausted by the chase, was only moments from death. Dad was its last hope of refuge, forgetting its natural fear and caution. The little animal instinctively crowded up against him for protection from the sharp teeth of its relentless enemy. 
My friend's father did not disappoint. He raised his powerful rifle and deliberately shot into the ground just underneath the weasel. The animal seemed to leap almost straight into the air a couple of feet and then rocketed back into the forest just as fast as its legs could move. For a while, the rabbit didn't stir. It just sat there, huddled at the man's feet in the gathering twilight while he spoke gently to it. Where did he go, little one? I don't think he'll be bothering you for a while. Looks like you're off the hook tonight. Soon the rabbit hopped away from his protector into the forest. Where, beloved, do you run in time of need? Where do you run when the predators of trouble, worry, and fear pursue you? Where do you hide when your past pursues you like a relentless wolf seeking your destruction? Where do you seek protection when the weasels of temptation, corruption, and evil threaten to overtake you? Where do you turn when your energy is spent, when weakness saps you and you feel you cannot run any longer? Do you run to your protector, the one who stands with arms open wide, waiting for you to come and huddle in the security of all he is? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Is there any moment that you and I don't need God? Sometimes we'd like to think so, but no. There is no moment that we don't need him. We are always in need. Even if things appear to be going well, there is always someone chasing after our lives. Satan desires to devour you. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. We must run to his name. Engaging with God also means that we should allow him to cleanse us daily. When you let him cleanse us daily, John 13, 6 through 10 says, he came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You ever physically wash somebody's feet? It's a humbling experience. You ever had your feet washed by someone else? It's a humbling experience as well. The teacher here is wanting to show his disciples the important truth. See, from a physical sense, the though they may have had a bath at some point, walking around the road in, in, in life, they, their feet got dirty and needed to be cleaned from the muck and the mire of the streets. The other part of the truth is that once you have been cleansed from your sin by trusting in Jesus, you do not need to be saved again. You've been washed completely. You are whole. Remember, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. But as believers, as we continue to live in this world, we do get the muck and the mire of life on us, don't we? We do at some times do things that we ought not to do and sin against our God. So we must regularly let him cleanse us to wash our feet so we don't have to continue to spiral down in the lifestyle of sin and taint his name and ruin our lives. Again, remember 1 John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It'd be fun to sit with a number of inventors like Bessemer and others who create really cool things. But the fact of the matter is, the creator of the universe has given you and I a way to sit with him, to, to, to wonder at who he is in awe, to engage with who he is. And we're gonna take just a moment to do that right now. To stop, to marvel, to embrace his lordship, to run to his name and to let him cleanse us right now. If you wanna kneel where you are, here or at home, wherever, I ask that you would stop. Take a moment. Be in awe of the Lord and his amazing grace and engage him in truth. Do that now, and in just a moment, I'll come up and finish prayer. Father in heaven, I believe, I believe you, that you are who you say you are. And yet, like Thomas, I have to admit that I am desperately in need of help, of you to help me in my unbelief. Help me stop from the busyness of life and just sit with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the reminder that you are God and that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are merciful, loving, gracious, kind, and gentle. Father, I ask that you help my brothers and sisters to remember that too. 
God, that you would encourage our hearts in such a way that we would go out of here joyfully ready to do what you have called us to do in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the chaos. May we be ambassadors of peace. Not man's peace, your peace. May we be men and women and boys and girls who who truly shine your love and lead with authority given by you, our creator. Father, if anybody here doesn't know you, I ask that you would pierce their hearts with the truth that your son died for them and rose again. May they trust him for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.